in Jesus, God is inviting the world back into a restored, healed relationship with himself. This is the big idea we started two weeks ago. Reconcile. What does the word mean? You know what it means, but even the Bible word means there was something broken, something torn, something damaged, and God is, through Jesus Christ, is restoring, repairing, healing something that's broken, bringing it back, reconciling, you might say, lost humanity back in a relationship with himself, right? It starts, so reconciliation starts with mankind and God, and that was the message last Sunday, if you heard it, and we call that vertical reconciliation, or theologians, vertical reconciliation between us individuals, men and women, and God. You know, there's a famous question that comes to Jesus. Many of you know it. It's recorded in one of uh, a couple places, but Matthew chapter 22, and someone comes to him, that's a great question, and says, you know, Jesus, what's the most important thing? You know, give me the most important truths of the Bible. What is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, answers, he said, listen, let me sum the whole thing up for you. All of the law and the prophets, in his case, in those days, speaking of the Old Testament, can be summed up in two simple commands, Jesus says. Isn't that great? I'm going to sum it all up for you. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying, listen, your, rela- your relationship with God should have a direct impact on your relationship with other people. Loving God means loving your neighbor. Okay, that's what he's saying. Loving God means loving your neighbor, whatever their political point of view, whatever their skin color, whatever their cultural background. So we call that kind of reconciliation horizontal reconciliation, right? Loving your neighbor as yourself. In one of the most well-known passages on what we'd call horizontal reconciliation, the Apostle Paul is going to call Christian people in his congregation in Ephesus, and, and, and I'm saying this to us here, he's going to call them, in light of this, to become, in their everyday life, what they are. Right? To become what they are. To live out in their reconciled relationships or in their relationships with everyday people, with the people from whom they live around and with. What has already been, past tense, achieved by Jesus Christ in the work of the cross. To live out what has already been achieved. To become who we are. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. If you have a copy of the Bible, Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 18, in a message titled, Reconciled to Each Other. Follow along as I read these words. Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, speaking of Gentiles, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, 
and thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, reconciled to one another." You know this, or we've talked about this before, many of you know this, that the Bible, uh, that the church, I should say, in the Bible, for its first many years, you know, uh, uh, certainly probably at least 10, but maybe more, everyone in the church of Jesus Christ that was one, two, three, four, maybe 10,000 strong or more, if you read the, of the book of Acts, everyone in the church was of the same cultural background, right? They were all Jewish, every single one of them. And most of the people in the church, this Christianity was brand new, most of them, for the most part, all lived either in Jerusalem or in, let's say, in that part of Israel. Isn't that amazing? You know, we, we, we know this famous line, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. Now, we've heard that statement before about, you know, uh, segregation of the races or of people, ethnicity groups in the church well, that certainly could have been said in the early church, right? I mean, for, for many, many years, certainly the most segregated hour in the book of Acts or the first 10 chapters only was certainly the church. There was only one cultural background. But here's what happened. By the time the New Testament letters were written, like the one we just read from, which was not that long, you know, we don't know exactly, but let's say uh, another 30 years or 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in that very short period of time, everything flipped. And the minority, like if we were in a church in the early book of Acts, I might say, raise your hand if you are not from a Jewish background. Oh, there's one over there from Italy, and well, there's one way over there from, you know, from somewhere in Turkey, but everyone is from a Jewish background. By the time the New Testament are letters, it completely flipped. And the minority who were the Gentiles, had become the majority. The bills were on the bottom who came on the top, right? Just a few uh, years, right? And what happened is this. The old problems resurfaced. I'm talking about people problems, right? Majority culture, minority culture. The old problems resurfaced, but now the people uh, that were on the top were a different group, right? <laughs> That's something, but here's the interesting thing about that. Why is he writing? Why is this such an important passage of Scripture? Because central to the church's witness, this isn't just some small little regional problem, central to the church's witness, including ours, is what we call a very unnatural unity. If you read the careful of the New Testament. In other words, what made the church unique, yes, it had doctrine, you know, and that's central, that's the foundation. But what made the church unique, the reason people would say something in the coffee shop or, or at the pub or, or they'd say something like, hey, if you, my neighbor, they would make comments about the church was because of the very unnatural unity because prior to the church of Jesus Christ popping up all over this part of, of the world, right? Prior to that, these people that were going to church together would have nothing to do with each other. They wouldn't, the people who had nothing to do with each other because of their class, because of their neighborhood, because of their skin color, because of their religion, these people all of a sudden were working and hanging out and worshiping together. You know, uh, you know, bank president Bill was sitting in church with barkeeper Joe, in a manner of speaking, and they were worshiping together and people were noticing it. 
You know, high society Mary was, was working at the homeless shelter with the streetwalker, Trixie. Okay, you know, I figured that wouldn't offend anybody, Trixie. But anyway, the point is, this is what made it so amazing. They said, how is this possible? How are people that had nothing to do with each other all of a sudden coming together? Read the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 4 as an example. There's this beautiful, idyllic picture. And it, it, it's supposed to capture your imagination to say, in the church of Jesus Christ is a place where people are so overwhelmed by God's love, their judgments are put down, their prejudices are put down. They're not about themselves, they're about other people. And it's this beautiful harmony. And this is a beautiful thing. This is a picture of what the church should be. However point of this message in this passage is that unity is not a permanent feature of the church oh that it was see the reality that was achieved in Christ it's a reality it's a spiritual reality in practice is a different thing in practice old habits in the church this one too perhaps began to emerge and as those old habits began to emerge it began to threaten the unity and as a way to really encourage this church to a deeper experience with the gospel, the Apostle Paul gives some straightforward encouragement and advice. Okay? Let me give it to you as fast as I can. First thing he says is, know your history. Know your history. He's writing, if you read, listen carefully to the words I just read that we led together, to a church that's predominantly now almost exclusively from Gentile background. Therefore, remember that you, formerly, who are Gentiles by birth. Now, there may have been some Jewish background people, but he didn't have any problem in basically saying to everyone in this church, this, reading this letter, therefore, remember that you who were formerly Gentiles by birth were called uncircumcised. Let me do this point really fast. He's saying, listen, I want you to remember your history. There was a time, now you're on the top, now you're the kind of elite, or you're the important people, you're on the elder board, you're running the church, you're the people who are deciding what kind of food we serve. You know, in other words, you, you used to be, now when he says you were, you were formally called, there's quotations in the NIV or in the text, uncircumcised. Now to you and I, that word doesn't really mean a lot. It's kind of this word that we don't, we understand the circumcision, many of us, was a covenant. It was the way the Old Testament people of God were identified, and it's, it's something that's it's a strange thing, Genesis 17, I want to get into that, but that's how they were identified. But the term, which means nothing to you and my except a strange medical procedure, but the term uncircumcised was a racial slur. It was like saying, you who were white trash, okay, as a racial slur, you who were one time called the uncircumcised, right, are now been brought near by the blood of Christ. But here's the interesting thing about this passage when we talk about, uh, 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 you know, whether you want to call it racial reconciliation or ethnic conflict. Not only were these people that he's writing to not only had they been subject to, let's say, the, um, the, the this victims of human prejudice, they also were of divine exclusion, okay? They didn't just have, you know, it wasn't just about the wrong schools and the wrong neighborhoods. They couldn't go to church either. Listen carefully. Remember that at that time, verse 12, we just read it. At that same time that you were called the uncircumcised, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, if you don't get it, let me give it the third time, without hope and without God in the world, okay? 
I don't know what it's like to be an ethnic minority in any culture, and it must be horrible to be on the, on the, on the receiving end of prejudice, of bias, of you're not welcome here, but can you imagine, not just from people, but from God, okay? You were without God, without hope. You were foreigners from the promises of God. Now, when he talks about the dividing wall, okay, if you're paying attention to verse 14, Christ himself is our peace. He, he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall of hostility? He says it in the next verse. It's the commandments and the regulations. What differentiated the Jews from the non-Jews. Listen, it wasn't their DNA. It wasn't anything about them. It wasn't their skin color, their hair color. In this case, it, wasn't, it had to do with God's relationship with them. God conferred on them a covenant. He called Abraham and he gave them a set of commands that they began to live out. I don't eat this. I don't go there. I don't do this. That, those commands and regulations, right? Verse 14. He had a series of regulations, kosher laws, etc. And those commands in those laws differentiated them from other people. But over the course of time, they became a source of pride. And they basically became a dividing wall between them and the other people God had called them to reach. Okay? This is the whole problem of the Old Testament. But even worse than that, he's making reference to something else as well. So the law is the Let's call it the dividing wall. But literally, those of us, if you know the story of the temple, right? In the old covenant, the Jewish people, there wasn't churches on every corner. There was one worship center. It was in Jerusalem, period, paragraph. There was only one beautiful, Herod's Temple, one of the great architectural uh, uh, you know, uh, wonders of the world in his time. And people came there. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you'd come there three times a year to worship. And there was only one. And there's only one monotheistic religion then. It's not like today. There was no Islam. There was no Christianity. Judaism and paganism, that's it. And there were a lot of people called God-fears in the New Testament that would come. And they liked the Jewish religion. They liked the Old Testament. They worshiped the God of Israel. They're all seen in the New Testament. But when it came to Saturday, which was their Sunday, they came and they could only go so far. They could go in the temple in what you and I would consider the lobby. So there was a lobby, it was called the outer court, and they could go there, but then at the end of the lobby where the inner court and then the in, inner inner court took place, there was a big uh, a, a, a wall that said, basically, not welcome here. In 1871, they did an archaeological dig, and, 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 uh, and they found a piece of limestone slab they think was from the original temple. It's in a, in, it's in a uh, museum in Istanbul. This is what it says. Quote, no foreigner shall go within the sanctuary. Trespassers will be prosecuted. Trespassers will be executed. Can you imagine, right? This is what it meant to be a Gentile. And Paul saying, listen, know your history. But now, this is how amazing this is. In Christ Jesus, you who were once not only the subject of human prejudice and human um, bias, but God said, you're not welcome here either man of speaking, you are now brought near by the blood of Christ, right? You need to know your history. Listen, if you and I want to do more than quote Jesus, and we want to actually live more like him, 
and actually want to actually be different kinds of school teachers and different kind of doctors and different kind of business owners and different kinds of uh, sports people and actually live in a different way in the way we treat and love other people. If we actually want to do more than quote Jesus and live like him, you need to know your history. You need to know where you came from. You need, if you think that your good looks or your superior intelligence or your cultural background got you where you are today, you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You who were formerly called Gentiles, say the Bible's a gritty book, formerly called, in quotes, white trash, fill in the blank, the uncircumcised, now you're on top. God has changed everything. But be careful. Remember, know your history. Know where you came from. You are what you are because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Okay, Know your history. Second thing. Live in the present. This is the heart of this passage too. What do I mean by that, Rob? Live in the present. We need to live, you and me, if you're a Christian here today anyway, live in the light of the new reality that Christ has opened up in your heart in the gospel. Let me say that again. You need to live more in the light of the reality. It's a reality, capital R. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Live in the reality that Christ has opened up for you in the gospel. Let me say this. Whenever you became a Christian, if you happen to know the day or time, for me, I was a college student, so I kind of remember I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Let me tell you something. The day that I became a Christian, it was a game changer, but it was the, uh, God planted a seed in my heart. Yes, my sins were forgiven in some grand cosmic way, but he planted a seed in my heart. My life didn't change overnight. It still changed. That was 30-something years ago. God planted a seed in my heart. And it's up to me, it's up to you whether or not I'm going to nurture that seed with the word of God, with prayer, with fellowship, with surrender. I'm going to nurture that seed so that I can become someone like a tree planted by a rivers of water that yields its fruit over its seasons and its leaf shall not wither and whatever it does shall prosper. That's a lifetime. You need to live in the present the gospel needs to become to capture your heart and your imagination or you won't live different than anybody else you know over the last many years maybe the last probably at least since 2012 whenever Trayvon Martin uh, happened many so many names of all these incidences in the news uh, of people that uh, uh, in this case uh, African-American men young men I think most of the men um, all these stories but ever since about then, the book started to be written, and a lot have been written even in the last two years. I'm talking about racial reconciliation, some by Christians. You know, how, what, how do we make sense of all this? Some night, not Christians. And uh, some of you have read those. I would say as your pastor, I've read a number of them. You know, you know, maybe the top six or eight. I mean, I've read the books, and I've learned a lot from some of these books. Some of you have read them. But let me say this. If you're reading them instead of reading this, or if you're reading them to interpret this, that's what some people say, you'll never actually do lasting work of reconciliation. Why is that, Rob? Because the cultural remedies, there's some good things in there, but the cultural remedies cannot touch the heart. So you can change the laws, that's not a bad thing, but unless you change the heart, you haven't really done anything. I read a book um, a couple years ago. 
and uh, that I would also recommend you has nothing to do with this topic of, of race or racial reconciliation. Um, it's about genetics, and it's called The Language of God. And The Language of God is written a book written by Francis Collins, some of you know that name, who is today, 2021, the director of the National Institutes of Health. The, 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 whoever is the director of the National Institutes of Health is the most important, prestigious science job in America, maybe in the world, but certainly in America. He's Anthony Fauci. We all know that name. He's Anthony Fauci's boss. Now, Francis Collins got that job. Obama appointed him. Why did he get that job? How do you get that job? Because of great scientific discoveries. He was the guy, with a few others, who was primarily credited with the sequencing of the human genome, which happened less than 15 years ago. And that was, for those people who care, I'm not really a scientist, but I, I'm, an, I'm an admirer, it was the most um, advanced scientific discovery in our lifetimes, the sequencing of the human genome. And because of that, he got appointed to take the top job. Well, it just turns out, they don't tell you this necessarily in the paper, that Francis Collins is a committed follower of Jesus to his toes. Isn't that amazing? And he wrote this book called The Language of God, talks about the sequencing of the human genome. And I read it, and it was fascinating to me. It was, it was, I, he read it in a way that I could understand it, right? And it got me interested as a layman in genetics, okay? And I began to have read and read other things, and I, and I came across an article just very recently. It was actually published in the New York Times, but it was 20 years old, and it was about the rough draft of the human uh, uh, sequencing of the human genome, which, which happened in 2000. And this is what the, art, the art, title of the article was this. Do races differ, not really, genes show? August 2020. Quote, race is a social concept, not a scientific one, said Dr. Craig Vettner, Venter, excuse me, head of the Solera Genomics Corporation in Rockville, Maryland. If you know this story, Vettner and Collins were the two principals in this great work. From the, he says, we all came from the same number of tribes that migrated out of Africa and colonized the world. Dr. Vetner and scientists at the National Institutes of Health recently announced that they had put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome and the researchers had unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. Isn't that unbelievable? This isn't some backwoods crazy person. This isn't some, you know, medieval history. This isn't something I just dug out of some, you know, ultra-conservative Bible commentary. This is the most advanced scientist working for the National Institutes of Health on the most advanced kind of science, genomics. And they're saying, listen, we want to let you know it is our, our scientific point of view. We unanimously declare that there is only one race, the human race. They decided to agree with what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago in the 17th chapter of Acts when he was quoting Moses from the book of Genesis 1,000 years before that. Isn't that unbelievable? Okay. Unbelievable. Race is a scion, is, is a social construct. Well, listen, you know what I'm going to tell you now. In the case of black Africans, why was that done? Race is a social concept. Well, to justify the subjugation of a people for slavery, you know that, I hope, right? It's history. That's why it was done. But praise Jesus 150 years ago 
slavery was outlaws. And praise Jesus, 55 years ago, the color line laws were outlawed. Uh, outlawed. What are the color line laws? Well, back of the bus, drinking fountain, etc. Praise Jesus. But not all is well, right? By any estimation, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the emails, but by any estimation, okay? Um, African, African-American unemployment is twice what it is for whites, depending on the state, but that's an average. Segregation. Do you know we desegregated schools? When we say we, I'm talking about the United States of America. We desegregated schools in the 1950s. Not even in the 60s, the civil rights uh, 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 legislation. It happened before that. Today in America, from everything I've read, schools are more segregated today than they were in 1950. You say, well, Rob, what's the problem? Well, you can change the law, but changing the heart, okay, is a whole nother matter. And I would say this. Are things going to change? I'm talking about these kind of issues, cultural. I would say in my lifetime, I'm not so sure. Whoever the youngest person in this room is in your lifetime, um, I hope we make some advancement. But let me say this, too. It's not my calling, and it's not yours either in this sense. I'm talking about legislation. His purpose, I'm reading from verse 15, was to create in himself one new humanity. What is the new humanity? It's not the United States of America. It's not the broader culture. It's, not the, it's the church of Jesus Christ. The only way you can get to solve the real problem, the hostility that's really behind the problem, below the problem of all kind of prejudice, all kind of bias, all kind of judgment, not just between whites and blacks, but between all kinds of different groups, the problem below the problem is an inner hostility. You can change the law. You don't touch that. The only person who can change the inner hostility is the cross of Jesus Christ which is why the new humanity, God's answer to the problem, isn't just this problem, but of this problem is not Capitol Hill. God's answer is every old, everyday people like you and me who surrender their lives, who choose to live in the present, to know their history, and humbly allow God to change us so that we can actually love people in a way that other people don't. I know that's slow. I know that seems hard as nails. I know that's not very sexy, but that's God's plan. Need to live in the present. I had an opportunity. Before I came to Browncroft, I was a missions pastor. Some of you know that. It's kind of like an associate pastor that does missions stuff. And for a number of years, I worked and did pastoral training. I was in, based in Texas, but in my church in Africa, uh, in this case, other places too. But we'd sit in a room with 100 or 200 people and we'd, we'd train pastors. And my last trip before I came to Browncroft was in the summer, I think, of 2004, 2004. And I was in Rwanda, and I'd been, to, I'd been to East Africa, a number of countries, but I'd never done this in Rwanda. And the guy who was my friend and leader of this organization, he happened to be Rwandan. He lived in Dallas, Texas. But his new friend, who was on, you know, one of the other leaders, he actually did live in Rwanda. And so when it was all done, we had this great pastoral training, which I'd done you know, many times in, in different countries with these men, first time in Rwanda, we're sitting having dinner together, and, and it was all over, and I was just full of excitement, and I was so, just, it brings you a lot of joy doing this kind of work, and, and I was just sitting there talking to my friends, and I asked this question, right, 
It's one of these, I probably got a few of these in my, we all have a few of these in our, in our, in our lives, right? Where as soon as the words are out, you go, I wish I could get that back. Did you ever do that, Michelle? Oh, oh, I wish I could get that back. And I only knew that only because of the look on everyone else's faces. It was just like, it was like a silent bomb went off in the room. And you're like, oh my gosh. It's even worse when you don't even know what you said that's wrong. I just offended somebody. I don't even know what it was. So I can't quickly fix it, you know? And here's what I said. I said, guys, you know, pass the salt. We're having dinner. And I said, let me ask you a question. If you know the story of Rwanda, I was there in 2004. It was the 10-year anniversary, which was kind of exciting to be there. Some of you know this, some of you don't, of this horrible genocide that had happened in Rwanda in the 1994 um, between people, not soldiers, but civilians who had an ethnic conflict, the Hutus and the Tutsis, two people that look exactly like each other for the most part, live in the same communities, but they're tribal conflict that was rooted, I think, back in the colonial days with the Belgians, but the point is they were at each other's throats, and it, and it was like a, a powder keg, and in, in 100 days, give or take, in 1994, moms and dads and farmers and school teachers picked up, not guns because they weren't soldiers, whatever they could find, and they went after each other. And in 100 days, between 800,000 and a million people were butchered. It was a horrible, horrible story. I wish it was the only one, right? You're probably figuring which one. You know, you've heard so many of these stories, or more than one. And, they were, and they've been trying to heal ever since then. And it was great to be there. And I said to them, here's my question. I said, guys, I've never asked you, are you Hutu or are you Tutsi? I thought this is old news. Say so you're laughing, thinking, even you're, are you that dumb, Rob? You know, are you Hutu? And it, for, I think a minute went by, but it felt like five. Oh, yeah. Nobody knew, I think, what to say, right? It was the, whatever the question is that you never ask that question, okay? And finally, my, one of the leaders said to me, he said, Rob, he said, you know, the, the, the men and women, mostly it was men, men and women, the pastors that you were working with uh, in the last three days, they were, you couldn't tell the difference. And I said, I could. they're both Hutu and Tutsi. Okay, okay, I kind of figured that. He said, and they love Jesus and they're serving in the church. But 10 years ago, they were on either side of these, these conflicts. We met most of these men in a refugee camp and they, they were involved in this conflict. And he said, now, we, as a rule, we don't ever ask that question to anybody anymore. That question's been ripped out of our, um, our vocabulary. We don't ask that question anymore because, in a manner of speaking, as I said two weeks ago, therefore, we're living in the present, we no longer see anybody from a worldly point of view. Remember I told you Paul had his great moment, his Copernican revolution. Paul had his, you know, you know, his Ernest Hemingway, you know, uh, the, the truest sentence I can write. I start with that. Paul's was this, and therefore, let me tell you what God's done in my life. And Paul was on the other side of this ethnic dilemma, right? He was on the, before Jesus came, he was on the power team. He was in the dominant culture. <laughs> Things got flipped in his lifetime. And Paul understood that. And then Paul was persecuted. Oh my goodness, his whole life is one long story of persecution. He knew what it meant to be a victim, 
then of a different kind of judgment. But he said, you know what? Because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life, because I've learned to live from the present, to let the gospel be the, 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 to ultimately be the ending of all hostilities in my heart over time, I no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view. We don't even ask those questions anymore. Do you live that way? Do I live that way? Okay, are we getting better at it? You need to know your history. You need to live in the presence, a real challenge of the Christian life, to become who you are. And third, you need to become your future. You need to become your future. Just watch how this passage ends. We're almost done. Verse 20, verse 19. After this great creation of a new humanity, a call to live in a different way. Consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of the household. You were the scum of the earth. Now you're the top of the charts. You're loved. You're valued. Right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, these people you had nothing to do with, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. Now they're your ancestors. Now they're your, you're calling them your, your, you know, your, 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 your mentors, your, your, uh, your great lights. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him, living in the present, the whole building is joined together to rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you two are being built together to become a holy dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What a beautiful uh, you know, crescendo. What's he saying there? A couple things, a couple, two important things. One, the temple isn't literal anymore. Right? It used to be that's where you went to meet God, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And if you were a Gentile, you could only get within 100 yards of it anyway. Now he said, listen, it's not, a, it's not a physical temple. God's presence is in the community of the church. That's where he's felt and known. People are supposed to drive by the church. I don't mean this building. Your life, my life, neighbors, friends, uh, you know, social. People are supposed to drive by the church and be blown away because of the way you live your lives in contradistinction to the ways of the world. And that's why he says, too, you are being built. We're under construction. None of us are there yet. But it begins by knowing your history. No, I don't care what skin color you are, what your background is. Some of you, you know, went to Harvard. Some of you, you know, never got out of graduated from high school and everything in between. Whatever the case may be, if you know Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. Your good looks, your superior intelligence, your cultural background, you are what you are because of what God has given to you. And in Jesus Christ, you are because of what he's done for you. But now, you, and, you who are in Christ Jesus, those of you who were far off, which is every single person, you who are far off when it comes to the righteousness of God, when it comes to the power and forgiveness of Jesus, now are made near by the blood of Christ. You need to know your history. You need to wake up every single day and say, there but, I, there but for the grace of God go I. My life is all about gratitude. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna lay my judgments down because Jesus Christ didn't come to judge me. He came to be judged for me. And when that captures your heart and your imagination, you can go out and live a different way. You can love people who don't love you back. You need to become 
your future. This is the call, you know. People have said to me over the course of this season, not just the last year, but, you know, this, this but maybe the last year, and we put up a reconciliation page, you know, that, and they say, Pastor, people have asked me this question. Maybe you've asked it or thought it if you go to this church, and they go, do you think, people said to me, do you think I'm a racist? I've said that to me. Do you think I'm a racist? Or do you think we're racists? Why are we even talking about these issues in church? And here's my answer to that question. Certainly that isn't my first impulse <laughs> that I think anyone in this room or, or people in this church are racists, okay? I would say, first of all, that's a question you need to answer for yourselves, right? What is racism? It's not a sentence. There's a lot of levels to it. Just like if someone said, Pastor, am I greedy? Well, I don't know if you're greedy. <laughs> I don't know. Am I angry? I don't know if you're angry. You need to answer that question for yourself first. Am I a racist? But my, my, past that, I want to know this. What are we doing about it? Right? What are we doing about it? Even if hypothetically, and this is very hypothetically, not a person in this whole church was a racist, whatever exactly racist means. Let's just say that was true. Well, Wonderful but we're supposed to be called to make the world a different place. Right? It's not about us. What are we doing to show the world a different way? Right? Or are we just consuming and being and say, hey, I, 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 you know, the, I think it was Barry Switzer that said, you know, uh, just because you were um, born on third base, I wish I could remember that quote. Anyone know the rest of that quote? You know, uh, 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 you know it doesn't mean, you know, uh, Many of us were born on third base. You know, I don't know. You know, uh, doesn't mean that you're you're a great baseball player. You know what I mean? I mean, you are what you are by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Know your history. Live in the present, okay, and become your future. So let me just say a couple things before we go. How can we how can we make a difference in this? Just some things to take notes on. This is literally one minute. How do I get better at this? How do I know my history, live in the present, and become the future? Well, you need to pray for a greater work of the gospel in your own life. You're under construction, right? You need to pray. There's a great prayer in the same book of Ephesians, chapter 1, that I might know the power of God in my life, that the power that rose Jesus from the dead would be available in my life. What's that power for? To live a different kind of life. Number two, move towards others from ethnicities other than your own. That's very easy, right? You know, it's not, put the internet down and go have some, a conversation with somebody from a different ethnicity. Have them over for dinner. Oh my goodness, learn something. Third, we do have a reconciliation page. What's the purpose of that page? Not to make some big statement, some resources. Roger Breedlove and I, who is a, a, a pastor, uh, African-American brother, friend in this city, we, we put a little curriculum together. We took four Bible passages and just asked ourselves tough questions. And that curriculum's gonna uh, be available, something you could do by yourself or with your friends in the next month. It'll probably be finished. There's a bunch of women from Browncroft. This you know, just happened under the radar. Uh, a dozen women who got together with a dozen women from his church just got together, broke bread, talked and they're going to do it again. It's a simple step. And there will be opportunities to serve. And, and even before this series is over between now and Memorial Day, to maybe take a step in the direction 
of connecting with other people. Uh, maybe Christian people, right? Begins with us that you wouldn't have done or haven't done before. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Be with us, we pray. And I do pray for us as a congregation. I pray for me as a pastor. Lord, help us to look hard at these deep questions of what it means to be reconciled to God and what reconciliation to God in Jesus is supposed to mean in my relationships with others. Help us to be people whose lives are radically changed by the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.